0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 127, Fertility Fraud with Eve Wiley. excited and honored to have Eve on today to tell her story. Eve and I know each other through a few different connections but she is a force and she is really trying to make change in my industry which is overall new and that means kind of unregulated. She is from a small town in East Texas and she uncovered a life-changing family secret about her genetic identity. She is referred to as the Fertility Industry's Erin Brockovich. She has had her story documented on ABC's 2020. She's been a huge advocacy for donor-conceived rights and women's reproductive rights. You are going to really be interested in what she has to say. Here we go. Eve, I am so honored and excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and the As A Woman podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. We were uh, kind of backtracking or gossiping before we started. And it turns out like our husbands know each other, you know, my cousins, <laughs> we have a lot of personal connection in that way, but you really became near and dear to me because of your advocacy and the fertility world in a very unique space, uh, really talking about fertility fraud and what it means and helping, you know, tangibly pass legislation. But before we get to all of that, I'd love it if I would just open the floor and let you share your story as you feel comfortable about how this even came to be something that you became so passionate about.
2: Right. Well, so I'm from a really small town in East Texas called Center. It's about 5,000 people, 30 miles from Nacogdoches, which is, you know, like the big town in deep East Texas for us. My parents struggled with infertility for years and at the direction of their fertility doctor, They looked at artificial reproductive technologies, and specifically, they looked at artificial insemination by an anonymous sperm donor. The doctor gave them this list from California Cryobank of sperm donors, and it was this list with a donor number, physical characteristics, um, interest, and level of education. So not a lot of information. And then he also told them that he had three local donors. And my mom had said, you know, I, I really don't want a local donor because... The doctor was saying, never tell her or, you know, your child, how they were born. Wait, this what? is not important. Interversing yes, your don't...
1: story one minute in. That's what the doctor yeah. said?
2: Yes. Because I mean, think about this at the time, right? Wow. Um, in the 80s, th- there was so much secrecy around infertility. And the the thought was that someone who is donor conceived they, they don't need to know about their genetic identity. It doesn't matter. And because a lot of this was male infertility factor, they, they wanted to protect the secrecy and, and, and you know, males are a little bit fragile. <laughs>
0: Protect <laughs>
2: by yeah, just a little bit by not telling people about that. And so there was so much stigma around infertility. So you know that was that was the thinking at the time. You know, now we know way better. The genetic identity is incredibly important. Yeah. But that was the way that the narrative went. So yes. So he told them, you know, don't tell the donor conception story. You know, your mom, your dad, and that's it. But because of being in such a small town, uh, my mom was very adamant. I don't want a local donor because how, how is she supposed to know who my half sibling is? And right. it's kind
1: of weird. What have you dated yeah, well in school?
2: Or if she's like going in the grocery store and she knows it's a local donor and she's like, okay, is it, is it that guy? You know, she, you know, small is it town. weird to see total small town? I mean, just total small town. So they, they selected donor 106 from California CryoBake and they used that donor multiple times. And they finally conceived me and I was born. So, at that time, a few, I mean, probably like two or three months later, they were pregnant again, but this time they were pregnant naturally. And so they were pregnant with my dad's biological child. When I was seven years old, that dad, Doug, passed away from cardiomyopathy. And so this Mm -hmm. is my little sister, Joanna's biological father. And my mom is a nurse. And at that point, she was like, wow, I wonder what Eve. Like, what does she need to know about her medical information? So then she started calling California Cryobank and trying to get more information. At the time, they had said that they could update the the donor records for medical information when I was 18 years old. And so in between there, she was collecting as much data as possible, you know, her medical records from Dr. Maury's, all of that, and and preparing for that. Well, when I was 16, um, I was going through her emails. She's a school nurse. And I had a habit of combing through those and getting all the juicy gossip on <laughs> <my> friends. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> or deleting an email if it was from a teacher that was like, you did not do so well on a test. But when I was doing that, I found all this communication from California Crowd Bank. And these titles were like artificial insemination and donors and. And you know, not not weird things to see because grew up in a small town. My grandfather was a cattle rancher, so I just kind of assumed that my mom was like, I don't know,
1: buying bull sperm for or something. Like I don't know cow insemination stuff. Something. So,
2: but then I clicked on it, and one of them had my birthday, and and that is how that's, you found out. That is how I found out. It was like ten p.m. one night, and then I did a quick, you know, I mean, this was like. Yahoo search, not even Google yet, searched and I was like, okay, this is exactly what artificial dissemination <laughs> means. Okay. You know, the weird thing is is I I I always knew there was a secret. I mm-hmm. just I didn't know that I was the secret. You look at my little sister who's 14 months younger. She has this beautiful olive complexion skin. She has dark hair, dark eyes. And I was blue-green eyes, blonde hair, very very fair skin. Even our interests were that we could not be more different different. if we tried and we were so close and I know that's not extremely uncommon but I think it just it it was just you know I I did question was I adopted you know was I a product of an affair so you know just the crazy things you're like I could be you're like what did
1: mom do something's up here yeah it's
2: like I I have to be adopted because I it was just it didn't fit but like I said I mean I, I knew there was a secret I just didn't know that I was a secret and come to find out later that there's actually um a name for that. And it's called the thought unknown. You always knew something was there. You just didn't know what that thought was. So putting words to that. So, so anyway, so then I confronted her and, um, and she just started bawling and she was like, I, you know, I was going to tell you, but by the time that, you know, you would understand your dad had passed away. Like you could barely grasp the, the concept of death. So how was I supposed to say, well, let's see, that's not your real dad because of infertility. And so it's just I, I totally understand it doesn't make it right but I but I have so much empathy and compassion right. for um it was so hard I mean I can't imagine and nobody talked about it then nobody talked about it. So but she did all the right things, right? She she had this huge folder for me and and we were able to go through all the conversations she was having on Yahoo Messenger board. She printed all of that stuff out. Um so so I could really see that that she was building this case for when I turned 18 to tell me. So I at least had, you know, that that proof. And, and then it just, you know, we just kind of embarked on this, I wanted to know who he was, you know, I could look in the mirror and, and trying to, you know, try to map out these things that are familiar. And, and and I, I didn't really see much of that back that was reflected in, in my family. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had these burdens that I was bearing that weren't mine, like my father's heart condition. Mm-hmm. Now, did I have? To be worried about that. I didn't know. I, I didn't have half of my medical information. So anyway, so then I when I was 18, I contacted um California Carbank and I sent them my mom's medical records. And then we just waited. And about a year later, I got a phone call a and year. they it said a year? a year, a full year. And I'm like emailing and checking in. I'm like, hey, any, he, because they're just supposed to send him a letter, the donor. And, and he's supposed to update his medical information and mail it back. And I mean, that's all that they could do. So, because when he donated, he donated under anonymity and it's not like it is now where you can't really promise anonymity because anonymity is dead with commercial DNA testing. Right. He didn't have an option of being an open donor. So took a full year and I had had this letter that I typed up and I, I wanted the cryobank to give it to him. And I mean, it was a. Difficult and awkward letter to write, but but I mean, basically, the gist of it was, I want my medical information. That was, you know, my number one priority. But also, I wanted to know who he was. I mean, this is half of me, and you know, I think that that was a really important part that I'm acknowledging now as an adult and not as an 18 year old naive 18 year old. <laughs> um, never in my mind did I think he would reject me. I, I think I I really thought that I was going to have this fairy tale story and. So yeah, so we and he he got that letter, he sent one back, we started emailing, we started talking on the phone, he came to Austin when I was in college to meet me.
1: Aww. And
2: and we did we just had this beautiful, still have this beautiful fairy tale story.
1: And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperature starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click Get Started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up, and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode.
2: I started calling him dad. We say I love you. He officiated
1: it's, my wedding. Oh, my. So you had this, like, thing you felt like was missing that you didn't know what it was. Suddenly, yes. you felt like that puzzle piece kind of came into your life. Mm-hmm. Like this, I was going to finally know what it was like to have a biological
2: father, to have a dad. And my kids call him papa he spends holidays with us I mean how how weird does. is it still does is hey dad meet mom like I got to introduce my mom and my dad yeah
0: so
2: weird like y'all have a kid together and you've never met like how weird is that so um so yeah it was you know it was it was everything that I wanted it didn't mean that it was easy all the time we, we were trying to navigate this but um I mean, he's great. I don't know if you've seen him on camera at all, but he's like, he's just, you know, teddy bear, he's just wonderful. So um, after I got married, shortly after we ended up getting pregnant and we had our son Hutton. And, you know, right off the bat, we were having, you know, crazy medical stuff. He had pyloric stenosis and... And he had a re- reoccurring pyloric stenosis and he couldn't tolerate certain foods. And anyway, just kept going on and on and on. So he was having all these exploratory surgeries and we had this big team of doctors here in Dallas and they couldn't figure it out. So we went to this doctor in Austin and he works from this like genetic expression, like a genealogist, not a genealogist, but like a geneticist. And he said the cheapest and easiest way for me to get this data on genetic variants is 23 meat plus health. And so we all did it. And I, I always knew just from talking to California Crow that I would have half-siblings. Um, he said They said that he was a very popular donor. I just don't really know what that means. So I knew <laughs> that I was going to have a lot of half-siblings. Now, knowing that there are no birth limits on donors, there's no cap or anything. I mean, that could mean hundreds of half-siblings for me. I, I always knew, but they told me I was one of the oldest ones. So at the time, I was thinking, like, I still had some years before those turned 18. So we do this, this DNA test, and, and the doctor calls and says hey, Hutton has celiac disease. We want to get, you know, the pylori sample and get, um, and make sure that that's what it is. But this is what this test has said. And, and I didn't know what celiac disease was. And they started explaining to me autoimmune disorders and how those are hereditary. So I called dad and I'm like, Hey, this is what Hutton has. Does anybody in your family know? I call my mom. So we go through the whole thing. And then in Blake's family too. And no, nobody. So it was, you know, kind of like a red flag, but I was like, okay, well, whatever. And, um, you know, I was so blinded by Hutton's sickness that I didn't even think about looking at the the genealogy part of it at that point. Well, then I started getting these emails saying, you have a close match, you have a close match. And we finally get Hutton, you know, well, about six months later, mm-hmm. and then I start looking at these close matches. And one of them, it, there were like two boys um, or three boys, I guess I should say, And, and so I'm talking to one of them and and it says, I don't know, are you familiar with the platform? Mm -hmm. So close family, when you're a half sibling, you're a close family to first cousin. So I kind of thought they were first cousins because I thought it would be telling me that, Hey, this is a half sibling, but that's not how it works. So this didn't make any sense. My mom has two brothers. They don't have biological children. So I was like, ooh, did I just you know, stumble upon a family secret here? Oh, yeah. Like, maybe like, they, they really have children and they don't know. And then dad, same thing. He, he has a brother um, who doesn't have children. He has a sister who doesn't have children. So it still wasn't making sense. Well, then I start talking to them and one is 13 years older than I am. And it was actually my mom who said, Eve, those are your, those are your half siblings. And so I talked to the first one and he knows that he's donor conceived and, and he is, you know, sweet little redneck. I just thought that he just didn't really understand what I was telling him Mm -hmm. because it just wasn't clicking. (laughs) And so we went through the whole thing and then. And then the second one is 13 years older than I am. And that didn't really make sense. Right. So that was like another little red flag for me. And then the third one, I thought I was here dropping this huge bomb on him because he was like, I am not donor conceived. He is like, I, I look like my dad. I, um, I have a brother that I look alike and I'm on the other side, you know, like, Oh, Ooh, this is what sorry, we all dude. say. <laughs> I know this is what we all think. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, why do I get to be the bearer of bad news? So I was like, okay all right, I'll, I'll humor you. Okay. So if we're first, cause he kept going back to we're first cousins, we're first cousins. And so, um, so I was like, okay, if we are first cousins, tell me about your uncles. And he said, well, I only have one uncle and his name is Kim McMory. And my world stopped. Kim McMory's, Dr. Kim McMory's, my mom's fertility doctor, the man that when, when my parent when my mom told the story of, you know, how they couldn't get pregnant and, you know, they prayed for me so much. And then I was born. And then later he became the person with, the, I mean, you know, so much this, this man, who is a pillar in our community at home. And, you know, everybody talks so wonderful about him. He inseminated my mother without her knowledge or consent with his own sperm. And he is my biological father.
1: It's outrageous and atrocious and it's happening so much more that we're becoming aware of. And I can't even, I just can't even grasp what it must've been like for you to realize this. So you're, you're talking to him and he tells you about the uncle, the name immediately, you know, who this name was, because this was an important person in your mom's life and, you know, in your town and what did you do? What did you do after that? I mean, did you call we your mom? I mean, what did you do? I don't even know what you do with that information.
2: She, she was actually with me. We were on vacation and um, they were upstairs. They were watching. I remember it. I, Tanya and I, I was downstairs and I was sitting there. And, and I, I remember what I did is it was silence because I had said to him, that is my mom's fertility doctor. And in that moment, we both knew. And then it was like, oh, whoa, hold on. And we got off the phone and, and I actually remember looking down and where I was sitting at the bar had this like live edge uh, mm-hmm. stone and I, I guess I had been rubbing it. And so my thumb was bleeding. And so I got up and bandaged it up really quickly. And, and then I drained my glass of wine and I was like, oh my God, I got to go tell my mother. And so I ran upstairs and I told her and she didn't believe me.
1: I because she I trusted this me. man. Of course she didn't believe you. Right.
2: And that's what she said. She's like Eve you are wrong. Steve is your dad. We have the medical records that say it. We have checked with California crabbing. They are the one that connected us to him. I don't know what you you've seen, but like, this is wrong. I kept telling her over and over again. And I have never seen anybody go into shock before. And she went into shock to the point where she was shaking. My husband, he was like, do we need to go to the hospital? Like put blankets on her. She just couldn't wrap her head around something like this. And that's when I told her, I was like, mom, People lie, DNA does not lie.
1: Yeah.
2: And I am looking at this and and this my DNA is half of Kim and Maurice, But it was so hard and so hard for her. And, And this is why I think that we see the offspring, the um, the children, the products of this in you know, that have come forward more so than the actual victims that are our mothers and fathers. And I think it's because and I've been over this so many times with my mother, you are allowed to have opposite feelings about this. You can be so happy that I'm your daughter and so grateful that it's me and you can love me so much and wish nothing else. But you can also be incredibly traumatized and upset around the deception, around the conception. Those two things do not have to exist together. And I think that that is so hard because they feel like if they say-
1: I don't want this, you don't exist. Right.
2: And I don't want you to exist. And it is so hard to separate that and not conflate the two. And so um, it's really interesting to, to see how that that's kind of played out as well.
1: Oh, my goodness. I can only imagine feeling this feeling, too, for you, where you kind of felt like, OK, my parents, they they bought sperm. They chose a donor. This was their decision. He's look how great he is. I know him. And then suddenly realizing that you're you're kind of born out of a lie that your family had no control over. And that immediately put that half of your genetics, I presume into a perspective that you suddenly did not like, is that a true statement? I mean, how do you, absolutely? Even
2: that? well, and that's what it is. I mean, it is, you know, for me, uh, I was 30 years old, starting over for the third time in my life. And I just, why has my genetic identity been a lie? And why is it something that I've constantly had to fight for and you know, when it affects me is one thing, but, but this directly affected my child. He had 12 surgeries that he did not have to have if I would have known my correct medical information. And so, you know, those unintended consequences just keep going and going. And then when I think about it, you know, if, if we really stop and think about how this could happen, this is in the 80s. This is in the middle of the AIDS epidemic where the American Society of Reproductive Medicine has said. All sperm must be quarantined for six months and checked trades. So now you have a doctor who is in the OR exposed to blood all of the time, is inseminating his patients with fresh samples. Oh,
1: so gross! I mean, but, and then think about so that even
2: more. It's so wrong. But but you have a woman that's driving thirty or forty minutes, and I mean, you know how it is. Your <laughs> cycle doesn't wait. You know, it's like, oh, sorry, cycle can't hit on the weekends. Yeah, <laughs> can't be fertile this weekend. It's anytime. So you have a woman that drives in 30 minutes. You don't have cell phones. You have beepers and bag phones, maybe. I don't know. So firm can live outside of cervical mucus for what? 30 minutes, an hour? Not even?
1: No, not not even. Not an even? Hour.
2: Maybe. But you're not going to take the chance that your, your patient's going to get a flat tire and waste that, right? So you have... Your patient come in, you prep the cervix, and then the doctor goes in, he masturbates the, the next room, oh. mm-hmm. brings the sample in, and deposits it inside. I mean, you are you are penetrating digitally the vagina. It's so invasive inside. in this context. It is, it no, is such it is so invasive
1: abuse and trauma.
2: And that is why Senator Huffman and Stephanie Click decided to put the Fertility our Bill for-, for Texas under the sexual assault penal codes because when they heard this and they heard me explain it to them this way they said that this is a sexual assault. They understand they they filed the statute of limitations and stuff to not reflect and mirror the same thing as, you know, forcible rape, but it is in our penal codes as a sexual assault now for Texas.
1: And that's because of you and that's and you're trying to do this in a lot of different ways because there's some things here that I think when anybody hears your story It's very easy to say, oh, yeah, well, that's wrong, right? Okay, that's obviously Mm -hmm. wrong. However, by the laws of the time, that was not illegal, correct? Correct. So what, you know, the landscape of that is when you have
2: anonymity, it's going to breed fraud, right? You Mm -hmm. don't have checks and balances. And in 1996, Congress passed an amendment saying that no federal funds were to be allowed for embryo research so all of that fell into the fertility industry type stuff so now you have a fertility industry that is now operating as a medical services and not under the scrutiny of research and so that's where we really saw this divide and that is how the industry has been allowed to go unchecked for so long so basically the the lab is where it is regulated. But then when it is going to, you know, clinics or administration, the doctor's like
1: office, right? The doctor's office. He didn't office, have an, an no... embryology lab or something like that. No,
2: he didn't have any of that. He, he had his own take. That's it. His tank to, to keep his own sperm. So it's, there was no oversight for him except his nurses and his nurses didn't even know this. They <laughs> have no And I've spoken idea. to his nurses and they're horrified. The ones that were there, they are horrified. They told me that he was seeing between 50 and 70 patients a day.
1: I mean, how many inseminations do you think he did? No
2: clue, but that donor catalog list, that is just the sperm that he had in his cryotank. And there are over 40 donors.
1: Mm, This is is
2: three. So, and and that's, I mean, that was the thing is, you know, there, there wasn't like Google reviews. This is just word of mouth and all of that. But I mean, they were like all of the time, we were prepping sperm for inseminations. And then I ended up confronting him because I wanted to know the scope of the problem. And I didn't tell him at first that I had my medical records. And, and he told me that he only did this one to two times, but I was looking at 23 and Me, Yeah. And and I already saw three. So I already knew at that point he was lying. You're
1: already and, lying. And
2: already lying. And this was hard for me because all I've
1: ever wanted is to know my biological thing. Like you just is. want the truth. You just I want the just truth. And you Just wanted, you, you wanted that relationship and not that it'd be a yes. weird way, but, you know, by lying about it, he completely, that's not happening, you know, right? Oh,
2: he was trying. Yeah. Well, I mean, immediately it's like, oh, you but... know, signed off on like parental rights and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, doesn't matter. I I am your daughter. I am by It doesn't matter what kind of contract like you put up with this. I am your daughter. But, you, you know, I think that that, that was so hard for me because I still had a choice how was I going to have this genuine and authentic relationship with him if I knew that he, he was going to lie Why? about it? There, there was nothing genuine, and authentic about this. I was always going to be the gatekeeper to his secret. And, and was I ever going to know if he was just talking to me to appease me and, you know, not to tell Keep his secret? Keep you quiet. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, I think the big push for me came from, what about my other half-siblings? What what if I have other half siblings that that I or I have the key to their medical mystery or to their children that are suffering and then after I came forward, which is really hard for me to do,
0: it's
1: so vulnerable, so personal.
2: You know, I think the the most shocking thing is how many people ended up supporting the doctor,
1: and no, really,
2: oh my gosh, I don't know. Have you ever seen that movie Bernie with yes. Matthew McConaughey? Mm-hmm. That is that area of town, and. And that's what happened. These people supported him. And this is their beloved doctor, a pillar in their community and their church. And, you know, they they told me things, which I believe, you know, these are very marginalizing comments, but it's kind of what we do in our society, right? It's like toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for him, to which I would say, I'm not talking about me being grateful to be alive. I'm talking about the deception around the conception and an unethical doctor. You know, well, at least you have doctor's genes, or, um, you know, you were so wanted. He was just doing the Lord's work. I mean, I can go on. Stop
1: it. So gross.
2: People wrote into the Nacogdoches Centennial paper talking about how ungrateful I was and how oh we God, have to, you know, rally around this doctor. And it's sad, it but it—that that is rape culture. That is victim blaming. That mm-hmm. is victim shaming. And it's rape culture. Here I am with all of these facts in his handwriting. This is what it says. And
1: people still chose to believe him. Isn't that wild? It is wild, but it is such a, say a testament to society right now. And how, you know, sometimes these things you can have all the facts right in front of you and somebody just will not believe it because Mm -hmm. they don't like accepting what it means, which really is that they were wrong about this person. Right. Right. It's that tribal mentality. How Mm -hmm. dare
2: she go against the tribal leader
1: type thing. So I was surprised to learn that he's still practicing. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is interesting. So,
2: so he has, Retired from gynecological services, so he's not doing pap smears anymore. So I have have a lot of siblings, (laughs) but um, several of them are still in the community, and some of them are in the medical community. So they see him quite a bit at the hospital. One of them actually sees him a lot.
1: He was the
2: gynecologist for two of our sisters.
1: Stop it! Stop Uh Mm it! For his, for his own
2: daughters, for his own daughter, and he delivered. He's delivered three of his grandchildren. They had no
1: idea. He knew and they didn't know. I mean, how could he not have known? I mean, he must've known. I bet he kept some secret record too. With I how swear many. he has a black book. Somewhere. I bet he does. But, I mean, I'm like so weird there's some narcissism here when you're putting your own sperm into somebody else that, I mean, right? Like, it's not that, it's not like we can even argue that this is before sperm banks existed and there right. was no option for sperm banks, right? There were good, sperm banks, California Curbanks, a great one that were options for safe and good quality sperm. So we can't even, right. it would still be bad, but we can't even go down the, the road of, well, there was no other way to get sperm. It had to be something like this as wrong as it would be. That's not even the right. case. Your parents no. thought they bought sperm from a really good sperm bank and he yeah. just threw it in the trash, put it in his thing. I mean, who knows what he did with it? Never even ordered it. Who knows?
2: There's there's definitely a level of, you know, some kind of God complex here. I mean, especially, you know, if you think of it as like, you know, the, here, here are these, his patients, you know, God cannot give you a baby. I can give you a baby. I am God when God fails. And I, you know, I think that, you know, for him, I think it really fed into probably some of that narcissism. You know, he says that he was just trying to, you know, give his patients a baby, give them what they wanted. But if there was nothing wrong with it, then why not just be honest? Because they would have said, oh, no, 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 we don't want that. (laughs)
1: Right. No,
2: but this goes back to consent and transparency.
1: So you've worked hard in the state of Texas to make this now illegal under a sexual assault essential category, which is absolutely what it should be. You're now working on other states. Is that your current status of what you're trying to do? Kind of update us on what's going on for you.
2: Yes. Yeah, so I, I passed the bill in 2019 in okay. Texas. Thank you. And then 2020, I was eight months pregnant and flew to Florida to testify on behalf of a victim who was unable to testify. And that was right before the world shut down. Hmm. But that one passed. Colorado passed, Arkansas, Utah, Arizona. So those have passed. And then Indiana had a bill passed in 2019, a week before mine did. And then California has had one since the late 90s. So that's the current landscape. Right now we have New York, Ohio, Kentucky, um, I actually just listened to Kentucky's Today in committee. It passed out of committee. And then Ohio is being heard tomorrow to be voted on. So, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm doing now is just state by state. My goal is to get to 10, and then we can take it to a federal level. And that Which way is there absolutely is good model legislation. should
1: be. Do you find resistance at the legislative level? Because these are difficult things to talk about, so much stigma around infertility a lot of people don't love, you know, assisted reproductive technology in general. It doesn't really fit with certain religious beliefs. And so I'm curious if you're finding Church. I mean, I'm just saying, um, are you finding it hard to get in front of certain people or to get them to listen to you because of some of those, you know, barriers we find in the fertility space?
2: So yes and no. You know, I think that you know, fertility fraud, doctors doing this is, has so much bipartisan support. We can all agree that this is so unethical and should not happen. And, and because of the language that is very narrowly tailored, it doesn't get a lot of opposition, which is great. Now there was opposition in Florida, but it was only from the Catholic church with the way that they had it written when it came to pre-embryonic cells. As soon as that language was changed, then they were fine. The ASRM has openly said that they will not comment on these bills because they do not believe that this is happening anymore. They don't want to breathe Wait, life really? into
1: this. Uh-huh. And I really think this is an, is a no-brainer from ASRM that this is a hard no-no, right? Like, no. So, And they have said that.
2: They have said that this was never a standard level of practice and this was never acceptable. So they have said that they've just largely agreed to not comment on the legislation. But they have said that they will keep an eye on the legislation to make sure that there are other things that they can't get on board with. For example, in Florida, the bill was actually more broad and it puts basically like some regulations with clinics saying each clinic had to submit a sheet of paper that had standard protocols on how the reproductive material was being administered. And they did come out and they, they lobbied hard against that. And, and it worked because they gutted the bill just to include fertility fraud. Interesting. And that was in response to the mix-ups that were hitting the news quite frequently. And there were a few in Florida because the problem with, with what we have now is, is we, we don't know the scope of the problem. We
1: don't. Right. There's so many people. who have no idea. No,
2: no idea. But there's, but also when it comes to so there was a study, I'm sure you're um, aware of one in five clinics were reported to have mislabeled, mishandled or misdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. But then you asked the ASRM and they're like, well, we report like 2%. Nobody's required to report those numbers. So we don't even really know what the numbers are. And so for a victim of any type of fertility fraud or fertility negligence, you have very limited choices. You have an ability to do a lawsuit, but do you really want to go through years and years of a lawsuit and being deposed? And like, you know, if you're still trying to have a baby, it's so stressful and, you know, all of this, or you can settle in mediation with a non-disclosure, which is most people is what they do um, when nobody else ever finds out. Bingo. And that's exactly what happens. And so we don't get an accurate snapshot of that. And they have said that if we have more regulations, it's going to make it more expensive. I have offered them the question of how and show me where, because I refuse to believe that parents are going to say, no, I won't pay 10 extra dollars or 20 extra dollars, whatever it is, to make sure that that reproductive material that is mine is going to me and not going to someone else.
1: That doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so we have a clinic. There's two of us. It's our clinic, right? Any sperm that comes in, there's like two papers. Everybody fills out. Double eyes on everything. What's the name? What's the name? Show it to the patient. Show the original vial to the patient. Show the one. I mean, like we show so many things and sign and papers. And I mean, what is it? The cost of an extra sheet of paper and a binder? I I just can't yeah. get on board with that. Is going to take more money or increase the cost of the procedure? And also, I also can't get on board that that's not worth doing that's the most important thing that we do is guaranteeing mm-hmm. that we have the correct gametes the correct samples for anybody mm-hmm. who's coming in and that is where everybody should slow down get the extra eyes do the extra step because that's truly of all the cool amazing things i do that stuff's the most important i mean and i'm ocd about your name your birthday your name your birthday who out this? what did the embryo say what did that what color was it? i mean like but that's how it should be. Right? You should have a bunch of checks and balances. Right. Which it should be on a lot of different people to check it. And, mm-hmm. you know, if there's any discrepancy, you don't, that doesn't go in anybody. Right. right. Like in the, and that's well, it. And
2: you just listed all of the ways that, that you ensure that there's no human error, but that's just, I mean, that, that speaks to you as a practitioner and, you know, how important it is for you to take the time, the level of care that you give your patients. And I can't say that that's how every doctor is because they decide how they want to want to do it.
1: But they should it's, be. It's I mean, come on. I know. <laughs> and they're not going to do it unless
2: they're mandated I, to do it. To
1: me, this is a no. Okay. We're going to. Um, so I now know what you need from me on my end of things to help you in your mission. What about from my audience? So we've got a great audience here. And I know that your your story and your advocacy and this passion you have to um, make this more known, transparent, and proof processes. You're not just trying to get you know, justice for people who've been victims of this. You're, you're really trying to, at the heart of it, you don't want it to happen to other people. And you're trying to help change over the system. And it has to start by one, making it illegal to do so, and then two, checks and balances to make sure it doesn't happen. But how can we as a community rally, get, rally with you? What do, what do you need from us?
2: That's a great question. What I really, really need is, you you know, I'm only one person and I can tell you that, first of all, go follow me on Instagram or Twitter. You can go to my website, evewiley.com, and I keep everything up to date as far as legislation. And I can tell you that every call to action that I post where people, you don't even have to be in the state. All you do is send a quick email. You could click the link, you know, that I post. And it is so important for these legislators to hear from people because, what I have found is with these legislators, there's not, they don't know a lot unless they have personally been through some sort of infertility and, and gone through some sort of ART. They they don't have the language to talk about it. Yeah. They don't have the knowledge. There's so much education. And then on the flip side of that, they're seeing 5,000 bills a session. So it's really important whenever you have five, 10, 15, 20 emails come through. It because then that- it, This is
1: maybe a little important, exactly. right?
2: well, in their office, they're like, Hey, yeah. we got to look at, and, and it makes a difference because when you're a bill, you got to get placed on a calendar to get voted on. You could have a perfect bill, no opposition, and it'll die just because nobody placed it on the calendar. So even though you think you're one person, it makes a big difference when it comes to legislation. And for these legislators, you know, these fertility farm bills, when I started this in 2019, I didn't I mean, I, I was doing this as like, this is the purpose of my pain. It's not a crime. This is a moral statement. I'm doing this. And then I started to collect stories over the years and just see, I mean, we've identified over 60 doctors who have done this and, oh, and it, but, but, but more than that, it's bigger. It, it's all types of like fertility negligence and there's so much more, but I can't make those changes and you can't get a legislator to make big changes right now. So really these fertility fraud bills are are like Trojan horses of education to Mm -hmm. these legislators. Our laws are 30 years behind technology. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That gap is growing. And this is so important because we have something right now with fertility fraud that we can all agree on.
1: Yeah. Bipartisan. Bipartisan issue that this is. And you know, it's like universally assault against women. Yes. by male providers, right? I mean, there are some fabulous male providers out there, so I'm not going against them, but this is a very distinct thing that is happening. And I feel like all, especially women, but everybody, but all women should be really up in arms about this. And if you've ever been in a gynecologist office, you know how vulnerable it just is to have your oh, feet yeah. up in stirrups. You can't see anything. You can't control anything. It's such a powerless position. And then to be abused Mm -hmm. in that position. It's terrible. Absolutely. And I think that,
2: you know, with this, it is a,
1: it's a, it's a way
2: that what we do with this is going to decide all the things in the future that we don't know. How are we going to handle things that technology is going to create with ART, Mm -hmm. artificial wounds, genetic editing would be another one. All that that, stuff. Yep. All that stuff. Things that like we haven't even thought of yet. And if we can't decide what to do with this, how are we going to handle it in 20, 30 years? Yeah, this one's a no-brainer, right? This is a no-brainer. So this is that Trojan horse to really be like, hey guys, y'all got a lot of catching up education to do, but here is what on the hori- what's on the horizon. Y'all need to have task force that is looking into this. And then the other big thing is the voice here that is always missing is that of the donor conceived person. How can we do this in a way that is best for them? How can we make sure that, that they have their medical information. Like there has to be a better way. We can't just send them off into the world and, and they find out they have 200 half siblings. Biodiversity concerns. I mean, there, there are so many things that just that need to be addressed. And you got to start with a the legislator. big easy one,
1: right? You
2: got to start with the big easy one because you, you got to educate these legislators. And as far as the listeners, you guys have the ability to do that. You guys have the ability to send them emails to say, Hey, this is important because our infertility rates are only going up. We are only using these more and more often, and it mm-hmm. needs to be in a responsible way.
1: I could not agree more. Eve, thank you so much for coming on and being so open and honest and really just enlightening. I think everybody to the side of the field that they don't really want to acknowledge exists, but it definitely does. And I agree with you, we should all be able to stand cohesively with you that this issue is wrong and help you get this legislation passed. So remind everybody again where your Instagram is and how we can go follow along so we can send emails and drive everybody crazy with our obvious support for your cause.
2: Make noise. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Eve A Wiley and Wiley's W I L E Y. My Twitter handle is Eve Andrews Wiley. And then you can go visit my website at www.evewiley.com. Thank you so much for having me and giving me a platform for my voice and sharing my story.
1: Uh, honored to have you. Honored to have you. Thank you. Huge thanks to Eve for joining us. And I really hope you all heard and listened and Feel inspired to work with us to advocate for change and for reproductive responsibility and to help advocate for reproductive rights. Love you all so much. Appreciate your support on the podcast. I have some great episodes coming up for you soon. As always, you can follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD, or check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford, MD. Thanks, friends.